So Matthew chapter 11 is where we're at today. If you would turn there. I'm going to read chapter 11, verses 1, uh, 1 through 19. And I, I was going to, I'll just say this from right on the, offs, uh, the onset here. I was going to preach the whole chapter, all uh, 30 verses. And there's a lot there. And I realized that it would take me about, literally about an hour and 45 minutes. So I had to cut my sermon into two, all right, because I don't think we're there yet. Maybe someday we will be. Uh, uh, Elder, Elder Ward uh, from Kentucky, he's an old preacher uh, that has passed. He would preach for an hour 30, hour 45 every Sunday. So we'll get there someday, don't worry about it. We'll get there. I'll get there. I'll but um, now we're going to break this down into two, though. So, so all that to say, uh, chapter 11 is um, various responses to Jesus, and I'll talk to you about that a little more so in just a minute here. Uh, but the first part are all the negative responses and kind of this condemnation of woes. The second part is the positive response of faith. So uh, unfortunately, dividing chapter 11 into two sermons, what it means is today is all negativity. And next week will be positive, all right? So if you want something positive, <laughs> then you're going to have to come back next week, all right? All right, so let's start with uh, chapter 11, verse 1, and I'm going to read through verse 19. Follow along in your Bible as I read. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. And when, Jesus, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who was not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in kings' houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you. And more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence. And the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came, neither eating nor drinking. And they say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came, eating and drinking. And they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Just for the sake of context, let's keep on reading. Verse 20, and he began to denounce the cities where most of, this, of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Woe to you, uh, Bethsaida. For, for if mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, 
they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable in the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And if you, Capernaum, will be exalted to heaven, you will be brought down to Hades. For if, if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you open our eyes so that we might see Christ. Open our ears so that we might hear your word this morning. Stir us. Do a work. Holy Spirit, move in our midst. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Clean out your ears. Did you ever hear that one growing up? Clean out your ears. You better clean out your ears because I'm talking to you. That's what my, I used to hear it quite a bit. All right. Now my ears were clean. It wasn't physical ears that were the problem, right? Clean out your ears. You know, kids a lot of times have a, uh, a hearing problem. They have a listening problem. And adults, probably more so, have a listening problem. We just have learned how to cover it up and how to pretend like we're listening, right? That's why you all are shaking your heads right now. <laughs> Amen, Pastor. <laughs> we have a listening problem. Now, check this out, all right? In the beginning was the fill in the blank word. The word spoke, and all things were created. The Word spoke, and the prophets wrote the Scriptures. Now, the Gospel of John explains it this way. John says, the Word became what? Became flesh. The Creator God, the God-man, Jesus Christ, incarnate, among us, the Word became flesh. Christ then spoke words of life, words which point to Him, which point to His work, His, his act of obedience, His righteousness before the Father, his, his sacrificial atonement on the cross, words of repentance, come to Me all who are weary and I will give you rest. Words of life. Isn't it interesting? That God is a speaking God. I'm not a philosopher, but I've sat back and thought about this a little bit. Why is it that we even have language? Is it not because God is a speaking God? And He has given us the gift of language so that God might communicate with us. How has God revealed Himself to us? Is it through a lightning bolt? Through a tidal wave? No. Through a voice. Through the Word. The Word written and then the Word incarnate. In these last days, He has spoken to us through Jesus Christ. So if God is a speaking God, then we are to be a listening people. Good. If there is a being, a deity speaking, our posture is to be one of listening. Now, here is our problem. Let me say this. Our problem is not that we just have, that we're hard of hearing. That's not the issue. 
You know, some people think that we're just, humans are just hard of hearing. We just need a hearing, hearing aid, and we can, you know, on our own ability, understand the things of God. According to the Scriptures, we don't just simply have a hearing problem. We are born completely deaf. Fallen man has no ears to hear. And I'm not talking about, uh, about physical ears. We see this in verse 15. Jesus says, all who have ears to hear, let him hear, right? Jesus isn't talking about physical ears, everybody who has ears on your head. No, Jesus is talking about a certain group of people, those who have ears. What does he mean? Spiritual ears. Ears that have been miraculously created by the speaking God. The God who spoke all things into existence has spoken your ears into existence. Has in his own initiative given you the ability to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's given you the ability to, to not just simply hear these things. And let me just back up a little bit. Everybody hears like physically these words. I mean, people, people can, can hear that Jesus is the only way, that, that they must repent of their sins and turn to Christ and they have salvation in Christ. Here's the problem. It, it, for them, it's not glorious. For them, it's not beautiful. For them, it's not life. For them, it's only offensive. So what does it mean to have ears to hear? What it means is this. You now, for the first time, hear the message of Jesus Christ, and it is glorious. It's beautiful. It's right. It's you. It's your story. I want to talk to you today on this theme, those who have ears to hear. Now, just for the sake of context, uh, let me break this down for you. So Matthew has now spent, and we have spent, ten chapters, chapter 1 through chapter, chapter 10 in the Gospel of Matthew, as Matthew has shown us the Christ. This is Jesus. This is who He is. This is the Savior, the Messiah, the One. The king, this is his law, this is, these are his signs. We've come face to face through his word with Jesus. And now in Matthew chapter 11 and Matthew chapter 12, the gospel writer is showing us really the, the total lineup of possible responses that people can have to Jesus. Now, I, I would say this, everybody as, as over the next couple of weeks as we study these two chapters, Everybody in the, uh, on this planet has one of these responses to Jesus that we're going to study. So today we're looking at three negative responses. And remember, I say you've got to come back next week if you want a positive response. Three negative responses to Jesus is what we're going to study and explore and look at today. And, and let me just say this, these three responses might be... Uh, prevalent in some of your own hearts who are here today. Um, and the only way that you'll be able to diagnose that, the only way that you will be able to, uh, to see that and to turn from that is if God this morning miraculously gives you ears to hear. So all who have ears to hear this morning hear these words. 
Three negative responses. First, disappointment. Second, disinterested. Third, dissatisfied. The first three negative responses that people have to Jesus. First, some people are disappointed with Jesus. Now, if you will permit me, I've got to say something. Tonight, there's a big game on the television. Does anybody know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Game seven, Cleveland Cavaliers versus the Golden State Warriors. All right? I have been a Cavaliers fan my entire life. The Cavaliers have never won a championship. And they are playing game seven this evening. All right? For the sake of your pastor, watch the game and root for the Cleveland Cavaliers. Amen? All right, that has nothing to do with my sermon. That's just a little... Um, but this, this does have to do with my sermon. So what, uh, sports commentators get on my nerves sometimes. So I'm listening to sports commentators, and this is what I find uh, them doing. When LeBron James plays for the Cavs, if you don't care about bas- basketball... When LeBron James, um, when he does well, when, when the Cavs win a game, all of the commentators are saying, this is the greatest basketball player in the world. He is the greatest this game has ever seen. And then LeBron James loses a game. The same commentators are saying, he's overrated. He's got too much hype around his name. Maybe he's past his prime. The same guys. And then he wins the game, and they, their tone changes. They do the same thing for Steph Curry of the Golden State Warriors. Curry loses a game, and they say, they, they ask the question, should he be the MVP? You know, if, if Curry, Steph Curry doesn't have a shot, he doesn't have a game, which is actually true. If he doesn't have a shot, he doesn't have any game. <laughs> Should he be the MVP? That's a good question. I think that's a question all of us are asking. But then Steph Curry wins a game, and they say, this is why this man is the MVP. The same guys, all right? Now, here's my point. Here's why I'm saying all of that. When a star uh, doesn't live up to expectations, there is disappointment all around him, And everybody doubts whether or not he is the MVP or the greatest player in the world, etc. Now, in some ways, it's not a perfect parallel by any means, but in some ways, that's what's happening here with Jesus. So look at the text here in chapter 11, verse 3. We see, verse 1 and 2 and 3, we see this this guy, John the Baptist. We we met John the Baptist a couple chapters earlier as John the Baptist Um, uh, uh, prepared the way, announced the coming Jesus, announced Jesus as he showed up, and then John baptized Jesus. Do we remember this? John even said of Jesus, I'm not even worthy of taking off his shoe. That's how great this man is. All right, so now John the Baptist is locked up. John the Baptist is in prison. All right, John the Baptist is a scholar. John knows the Old Testament. And John knows that in Isaiah, it says that when the Messiah comes, when the the prophesied one appears, the, the coming one, when he comes, Isaiah says that, that the, the, uh, the poor will have the gospel preached to them. 
that the blind will see, that the lame will walk, that lepers will be cleansed, that the deaf will hear, that the dead will be raised up, that those who are in chains will be freed, those who are in captivity will no longer be in captivity. John knows that this is the prophecy of the coming one. And so that John uh, asks this question, look at verse 3, he says, are you the one who is to come? And the literal words there in the original language is, are you the coming one? It's a title. It's a title of this one who's been prophesied, the Savior, the Messiah. Why is John asking this? It's because John is where? He's in jail. In his framework, in his understanding of what it's going to be like when the coming one appears. Is anybody in jail? Any of his, the coming one's people? Absolutely not. Here's John sitting in jail, and rightly so, doubting, questioning. Maybe I got it wrong. Maybe, I, maybe I'm not seeing the bigger picture. Maybe I've been talking about you as the Messiah, but here I am locked up. What's going on? Friends, this is what we call unmet expectations. The expectations of what I thought Jesus would bring into my life, bring into the world, haven't been met. And now I'm asking this question. Are you the coming one? Is this true? Listen, Christians doubt. This first negative response of doubt is something that we can apply and should apply to Christians, not non-Christians. It is fairly normal, actually, for Christians to doubt. I have a, a friend of mine, he's a pastor, and he is plagued with doubt. And he has discovered that when he's sick, when he's tired, when he's, when he's weary, he starts to doubt. And he sees it now as just simply a sin struggle like any other sin struggle. I doubt. I doubt. Whenever there is an unmet expectation in my life, I doubt. I doubt Christ. Some of you have unmet expectations in your life right now and you're doubting. I thought that if I got my life together and if I, if I was good with God, that my marriage would look better than this. I, I, I thought that God would bring along a spouse. If, if I love Jesus and Jesus loves me, why did I just lose my job? Why is the society rejecting me? Or we look at social problems around the world. If God is God, then how can there be so many issues? How can there be 13-year-olds that lose their lives? How can there be such challenges with refugees? 400 years of transatlantic slave trade. How can, there, how can there be a God? And so uh, we doubt. We ask these questions, unmet expectations, meaning if I was God, I wouldn't do it this way, is essentially what we're saying. And I think in some ways that's what John is saying, and this is why then Jesus rebukes slightly he rebukes John. As he goes on in the text, Jesus first says, tell John this. Look at, verse, look at verse 4, verse 5. The blind see. By the way, in the Old Testament, there was never once a miracle where blind people had their eyes opened. Never once. This is something absolutely, drastically new in redemptive history. The blind actually see. The lame walk, lepers are cleansed, deaf hear, dead are raised, poor of the good news, preach them. Meaning, these things are happening, John. The signs of the kingdom, the signs of me as the Messiah, that's actually happening, John. 
tell John that these things are happening. And, and by the way, I think there's evidence that John heard this and received it and was assured in his faith. And no longer did he doubt. Why? Why do I think that? It's because a couple chapters later, when John is executed, his followers, John's followers, go straight to Jesus. Why do John's disciples go straight to Jesus? It's because John told them that Jesus is the coming one. His doubts were, were gone and he was assured in his faith when he saw the signs. Jesus then, here's the slight rebuke, verse 6, he says, blessed is the one, a new beatitude. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Blessed is the one who, who has faith in me even when there are unmet expectations in your life. Even when I don't do things the way you think I should do things, blessed are you. Even when my plans don't, or your plans don't look like my plans for your life, blessed are you. Blessed is the one who is not offended by God's redemptive plans for your life. First negative response then is doubt, rooted in disappointments. Now, I want to go on from there quickly uh, to two more negative responses. Now, this first response is something we can apply directly to Christians. Some of you today are struggling with disappointments, struggling with expectations, doubting. By the way, let me just say one word on this. Share your doubts freely with each other. I'm so tired of Christians who pretend to have no doubts. I'm so tired of Christians who pretend to have it all together. No, share your doubts with each other. And then listen to this. When someone shares doubts with you, on the other side, learn to encourage them with the work and wonder of Jesus Christ. The signs. Remind them of the things that they know. Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15. Let's look at it together. Let's just remind ourselves of this historical document. Jesus Christ is alive. Encourage each other who are doubting with Scripture. All right, moving on now. The next two negative responses have to do not with Christians, but non-Christians. And as a matter of fact, it's not even written to non-Christians. It's, it's, it's written to Christians. Basically saying, don't be like these people. Don't have these kind of responses. Now let me set it up for you. So after he has this interaction with, with John, Jesus now begins to turn and talk to the people about John the Baptist. He wants to tell them something about who John is. Why? It's because if we rightly know who John is, then we will rightly know who Jesus is. So Jesus asks this question. He says in verse 8, he says, who, did, who was it that you went into the wilderness to see? When John was out there preaching and you guys were all flocking out there to him, who was it that you went to see? Was it a reed blowing in the wind? which was common in the desert, just these little reeds just blowing all over the place every which way based on the direction of the wind. You know, this would be just this spineless individual blown every direction by popular opinion. Is that who you went to see in the wilderness? Because you heard some spineless individual was out there? No, they're in the temple. They're, we've got them right here in Israel. That's not why you went out into the wilderness. Did you go out because he's a man dressed in fine clothing, which means this wealthy man, a swindler, someone out there just trying to get your money, dressed in a nice suit? Is that why you went out to, to the wilderness? 
to see John? No, that's not why you went out to the wilderness. Why did you go out to see John? He's getting at something. Then he asks another question. Is it because you wanted to see a prophet? Exactly. And I tell you, Jesus says, more than a prophet, verse 9. He's more than a prophet. And then Jesus takes this piece from Malachi. Now, Malachi's in the Old Testament. Before Jesus came. And in Malachi, it says that there is going to be this one prophet that is to come, like Elijah, who's going to prepare the way for the coming one, for the Messiah. Jesus then takes that and he applies it to John. And he says, behold, I I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. He's saying John is this prophet. He is this Elijah. He is this one who is to come that is going to prepare the way for who? For, For the Messiah, the coming one, the King. And then Jesus says this about John, verse 11. He says, truly, I say, there is nobody, nobody born of a woman, which means no human being greater than John the Baptist. What does he mean by that? Well, it's, he's not referring to John's person, but rather he's referring to John's position. Elijah, Moses, Isaac, Joseph, Isaiah, Esther, Ruth, all of these wonderful people in the Old Testament, none of them had as great of a position as John. Why? It's because John is the forerunner of Jesus Christ. And then he says this, if you will accept it, John is the Elijah. He is that prophet. Now, what is Jesus' point? If John is the greatest, that means he's the Elijah. If he's the Elijah to prepare the way, what does that say about Jesus? It means that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. So here is the picture now. Jesus says, I am the coming one. All who have ears to hear, verse 15, let them hear. And now there are these two last responses. I'm going to hit them quickly. Two negative responses that people who do not have ears to hear, uh, ways that they respond to Jesus. First one is this, and it's our second response for the sermon. They are disinterested. They are disinterested. Do you guys remember when you were a kid, summertime, being bored? Like, so bored, you don't want to do anything. Who remembers that? Some of you? Summers, just for summer, they remind me of being a child, so bored, I don't want to do anything. I remember sitting around, you know, my siblings and my neighbor, and my neighbor wants to play football, and I don't want to play football, I want to play basketball, he don't want to play basketball, and my brother wants to go inside and make a model, and uh, my sister's hot, and the sun's, uh, temperature-wise... <laughs> And, uh, <laughs> and she just wants to go roller skate in the garage. And, you know, my little brother wants to play, build a fort. And we just are not cooperating. Nobody wants to play with each other. Like, we just don't want to cooperate. We're just all bored. We don't even want, really want to do the things that we want to do. We just want to sit around and complain. So Jesus likens this generation to kids who don't want to play together. 
disinterested. Just disinterested. Now, in the ancient world, in Israel, uh, weddings and funerals were two major public events. So for a wedding, right down the marketplace, the bride and the groom, flute playing, the whole town would come out in this processional and celebrate this wedding. And then, the next day maybe, someone passed and it was time for a funeral. Again, the whole town would come out and they would hire women to be the mourners and they, the, the women would be mourning and there would be this, this dirge, this song that, of lament and that, that they're singing as they carry this casket down through the marketplace. Now, since these were public events, guess what kids would often play in the ancient world? They would play wedding and they would play funeral. So you get the kids together, the kids would get themselves together rather on a hot summer day. One kid starts playing the flute and they're having a wedding and there's a bride and a groom and everybody's celebrating and laughing and joyous. And then they would get tired of playing wedding and they say, let's play funeral. Alright, so now the groom, you're dead, alright? Lay down, alright? And now the girls go ahead and start mourning, alright? Now we're going to have the, the, the funeral and the boys are doing the, the, the mourning lament in the song. So Jesus says, look at it. Look at the text here. Jesus says, what shall I compare this generation? Hmm, let me think. It's like these kids playing in the marketplace. And we, we played the flute for you. And you didn't, you didn't want to dance. We sang a dirge and you, you did not mourn. Meaning, no matter what game we play, you don't want to play along. We play wedding, and you just sit on the sidelines and say, I, don't, I hate playing wedding. All right, let's play funeral. Come on. You want to play funeral? I hate playing funeral. That's how Jesus is likening this generation. You're just like kids who don't want to play. You guys remember these kids? Like, we're all kind of getting angry right now. Like, I remember that. I was that kid, right? You're like kids who don't want to play. You just refuse to participate. And this is a clear reference, too, to the ministry of Jesus and John. Jesus comes along with this celebratory dance and joyous ministry of eating and drinking and celebrating the King has arrived, and I don't want to participate in that. John comes along with this ministry of calling people to repent, this song of mourning, turn from your sin, and he says, I don't want to play that minute. I don't want to play that. Refuse to participate. The ministry of the Messiah has arrived, and you are sitting like a little child with your arms crossed on the sidelines saying, I don't want to. I don't care. I am disinterested. Friends, have the joys of Christ excited you? Has the call to repentance led you to mourning your sin? Are you participating in the song of the Lord? Are you participating in this age-old drama? Are you a participant or are you sitting on the sidelines disinterested? Disengaged? Describes people who First, see no need for repentance. And they see no celebration in forgiveness because there is no real sin to forgive. Now, those who have ears to hear, let them hear.
He goes on. Thirdly, the third negative response is those who are dissatisfied. Those who are disappointed, those who are disinterested, and those who are dissatisfied. You just can't make these people happy. There was a skeptic, a religious skeptic, that uh, visited a church, and, and he met a, a, a person in the church who was a Ph.D., had a Ph.D., and very successful. And, and the skeptic said to the pastor, oh, of course that guy is a Christian. He's got his whole life together. He's making good money. He's been successful. Of course he's a Christian. He thinks God's been good to him. But what about the person who's broke? What about the person who's an addict? What about the person who doesn't have two nickels to rub together? So then this skeptic met another man in the church who doesn't have two nickels to rub together, who has a past of addiction, who's broke, struggling. And you know what he says? He says, of course that man is a Christian because he's got nothing else in this world. He's got nothing else to look forward to. Of course he's a Christian. Dissatisfied. You can't win with this guy. And by the way, that's a true story. It happened in our church. <laughs> true story. Dissatisfied. You can't win with this individual. They're never happy. This is what Jesus says. Look at it. Verse 18, he says, So John comes along, and he's not eating or drinking. So John's fasting, taking the Nazarite vow. He doesn't, he, he's fasting all the time. He doesn't eat very much. He doesn't drink any alcohol at all. He, he comes along not eating or drinking. And they say, this guy's got a demon. Something's up with this dude. This guy is weird, right? He's just like a teetotaler. Like something is wrong with this cat. And then he says, the Son of Man, which is a reference to himself. I come along, Jesus says, and I'm eating and drinking. So Jesus is eating food and going to parties and he's drinking wine. And, and they say, oh, look at him. Look at him. Look how he eats. He's a glutton. Look how he drinks. He's a drunkard. You can't win with these people. That's what he's saying. These are just dissatisfied people. And any way you try to slice the cake, they're not going to like it. You just can't win with these dissatisfied individuals. Now, friends, some of you are working with, you are even trying to share the gospel with, trying to love dissatisfied people. You are trying to share the gospel with, you're working with, you're trying to love people who are just disinterested and they refuse, they refuse to play. Let me just boil this down. I want to give you two points of application from this text. Number one, you need to pray that the lost have ears to hear. I think that's a major point of what Jesus is getting at here. You aren't going to win them over through an argument. That's what he's saying. Because any way you slice the cake... They're not going to have it. They're dissatisfied. Any way you kind of explain the gospel, any tactic you use, any logic, they're not going to have it. They're dissatisfied. Any game that you try to play, any, you know, come along and check this out, check that out, they're not going to have it. They're just disinterested. 
We need to pray, friends, that our lost friends would have ears to hear. Now, let me just tell you a brief story about having ears to hear. I have been recently studying the religion of slaves, reading old letters, reading original writings by slaves in America, African Americans, who uh, had the gospel, all right? I mean, we're talking about over uh, hundreds of years' worth of material. Now, this is what has blown me away, and I've been so edified through reading these. What has blown me away is this. First of all, um, the slave owners didn't help, all right? There is no sense in which you can accredit these slaves uh, understanding the gospel. You can't give the slave owners credit for that. As I'm reading about slave owners and the way and, and the slave churches, so, so this one uh, slave from uh, early 1800s, his name was Peter Randolph. I read one of his uh, writings. And he describes the churches by slave owners that the slaves went to. And in these churches, he says, Peter Randolph says, the gospel was reduced to slaves obey your masters, do not lie, do not cheat, respect your owner, etc. That's pretty much all they preached. And Peter Randolph went on uh, about this kind of perversion of the gospel, which, by the way, Frederick Douglass said that these, this is the height of Pharisaism where the gospel is completely twisted. And preachers, this one preacher, I forget his name off the top of my head, this one preacher would preach on Sundays to the slaves, and then he would beat their backs all week long. This one preacher put one slave into a coffin to punish him. It was like a coffin sort of shaped box, and he couldn't move. And then the man died. I mean, just absolute cruelty. All right? But check this out. As I'm reading these, what I'm hearing is this. The slaves were able to, to see through it. The slaves were able to read through it. They would sit in these churches and they would hear enough of the Scriptures to be able to know how to weed out the truth from the crap. And so I was just talking yesterday to an African-American church scholar and we were talking about this, this history of, of uh, slave religion. And, and, and so we were, we were talking about how the slaves would sort of escape away into these, these times where they would, they would, under the cover of darkness, go in, into, into the woods or uh, into other places where they would hide and they would, they would sing the gospel and they would testify the gospel and they would preach the gospel to one another around and around over and over until they were all happy and satisfied. And so the guy that I'm talking to yesterday, he says, what's amazing is that, they, is that they heard. They heard. That's what he said. He didn't even know what I was preaching on today. I was like, oh, man, that is a good application point for my sermon. They heard. How is it possible with such a perversion? By the way, that is, don't let anybody ever tell you that that is Christianity. That is a perversion of Christianity that the slave owners used. And somehow, in the midst of it all, they heard. They heard the gospel. And they clung to it. How is that possible 
It's because having ears to hear is a miracle. It's, a, it's beyond human comprehension. It's beyond our logic. You just woke up one day and you have ears to hear. You can't explain it. You've heard the gospel your entire life. You heard it over and over a hundred different ways. Some preachers were good. Some were not good people, etc., etc. And then one day you wake up and you hear it. You have ears to hear. Friends, pray that the lost would have ears to hear. It is not a miracle that it's beyond God's ability for the hardest people in your life. Now, secondly, I'm going to close with this. If you have ears to hear, hear. Period. Listen. These truths of the Scriptures, the truths of Jesus Christ, His righteous life, His life of active obedience before the Father, His death on the cross, vicarious substitutionary atonement for your sins in which Jesus takes the punishment for your sins in His own body, rises from the dead. And all of His words, all that He has commanded, the, 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 the Scriptures, all of it, hear the words of Jesus. And you know that you have ears to hear when you hear these things and they are glorious. They are truth. You find yourself in this story. You're interested. You're participating. You're satisfied. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for speaking through Matthew, giving us this revelation of who Jesus is. And I pray, God, for the hardest people in our lives that you might give them ears to hear, that they might hear, that they might respond. And I pray for those of us who have ears to hear that we would enjoy your word, that we would be in it every day, that we would be communing with Christ every morning and every night. Let us listen to the words of Christ and let us find them glorious. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.